Welcome to the May 21st, 2019 edition of the Immigration Hour. It's great to be with you. I'm your host, Charles Cook, uh, here at Cook Baxter Immigration. Uh, last week we had a great show with uh, Hiba Ghalib, uh, my partner, talking about uh, uh, immigrants and crime and uh, lots of fun topics, um, including the president's uh, new immigration plan. Uh, this week, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about our immigration courts. Uh, NBC News just reported uh, this morning on breaking news this extraordinary discovery um, that 8,400 people over the last five years have been placed into solitary confinement in immigration detention centers. Okay, all of you who practice immigration law, and uh, please raise your hand if this surprises you. Wait, nobody raised their hand. I wonder why nobody raised their hand. Because we know this has been going on. We've, we've been literally banging this drum uh, for a decade. Uh, the Obama administration and now the Trump administration has aggressively used detention as a focal point. Uh, it's trying to ensure, trying to punish people and trying to force them to give up uh, their rights to hearings. And um, those of us like our firm who practice uh, in court hundreds of times a year on different cases uh, clearly know and understand the deep uh, and uh, terrible effect that immigration detention has um, on families, on individuals uh, who, who have relief from removal but who simply um, uh, can't abide uh, staying in custody any longer to actually uh, uh, take advantage of, uh, not take advantage in a bad sense, uh, but to uh, take advantage of the law that allows them to seek relief from removal proceedings. And uh, so we have seen uh, these, uh, the, the, the use of detention, and especially private detention centers, which we see here in Georgia uh, almost exclusively these days, uh, are, uh, are, are a terrible, terribly powerful weapon uh, used by the uh, Trump administration uh, to uh, attempt um, um, an uh, a, a increase in deportations by making uh, the stay in removal so terrible, so awful, uh, that uh, uh, no one can abide it. And that's kind of where they are. And so this, this news report, which will come out, we heard on MSNB this, MSNBC this morning, uh, and uh, we uh, saw that, um, uh, that the, um, uh, they're going to have a bigger, deeper uh, report uh, this evening on NBC News. We'll simply reflect what we already know. It's terrible. Uh, the SPLC this last uh, couple days ago, the weekend, uh, put up a uh, an interesting uh, read uh, about our irredeemably dysfunctional immigration courts. Did you know, a little factoid, uh, that 25 percent of the current immigration judges have been appointed by Trump, uh, and that almost 95 percent of them have either been former government trial attorneys or prosecutors uh, or military judges. Very few, a handful, have been private lawyers. Uh, and even a smaller handful have been private lawyers with immigration experience. Uh, do you know that to be an immigration judge, you have to have been a lawyer 
for five whole years, but that no immigration experience is necessary. So all you lawyers are listening to this and boy, I need a job that pays me $140,000 a year. Kind of work in some pretty awful places occasionally, but you might get sent to a place like New York or Atlanta or L.A. or Topeka. Um, so you could be in a pretty good place and, you know, you work an um, 8 to 4 job, 8 to 4.30 job. You get an hour for lunch. You get breaks during the day. Uh, it's, you know, not such a bad gig, I guess, uh, for a lot of people. Certainly the government lawyers are pouring literally pouring into these jobs. Now, being a lawyer uh, for ICE, uh, what, what they now call the assistant chief counsel the, uh, of the office of chief counsel, uh, the AOCC, which we used to call the INS trial attorneys, which, which I still default to as a trial attorneys, in and of itself, unless you're a narcissist, unless you're not the narcissist, unless you're a sadist, it's probably a terrible job. Um, what you going to do today, Daddy? Oh, I'm going to break up some families. Uh, going to go to work today. Uh, I'm going to go back going to work today and punish people uh, for misdemeanors and separate them for at least a decade, if not forever, from the families. Uh, now, some of the work of a TA is important. Some people deserve to be reported, deported. I mean, absolutely. Let's not kid ourselves. There, there are some people that have done really stupid things in America, really bad things, and they should be deported uh, to their home countries. But deportation itself is in some ways harsher than jail. So if somebody completes their jail sentence, and I'll give you a great example. Yesterday, I was approached by an individual uh, who is uh, now in ICE custody. He's, he's uh, down in Folkestone, which is five and a half hours from Atlanta, uh, but which is covered by the Atlanta Immigration Court. Um, and uh, he had just finished serving uh, 36 months of a 42-month jail sentence for a conspiracy to traffic drugs. Now, your thing, first thing is like, oh, my God, get that guy out of the United States. What a horrible human being. By the way, this is a long-term permanent resident of the United States uh, who was an airline pilot. Uh, and... Uh, you know, my uh, everybody's first impression is, well, I mean, it's a drug dealer. You know, a guy helping drug tell drugs, helping destroy, you know, youth and kids. So, but I always ask as a lawyer, you know, so tell me what happened. And uh, apparently, he's from Colombia. Uh, he was uh, approached by cartels uh, that said, "You will help us do this. You will help us get drugs into the United States. You will help us buy planes and fly planes for us when you're not working your normal job, uh, or we will kill your daughter." Uh, now, it was his only child who wasn't in the United States, was an adult. Uh, there is a long waiting line to sponsor adult children into the U.S. as a permanent resident uh, of about, you know, eight to ten years. And uh, while he would love to have brought his daughter here immediately and protected her, she didn't have a visa, couldn't get a visa, was denied a visa, actually, after this came up. Uh, and so to literally save his daughter's life, because, uh, you know, these guys, they don't, they don't play around. Uh, he uh, bought an airplane uh, for what turned out to be drug smuggling purposes. And that's, they didn't fly, he didn't fly drugs in the country. He just literally bought an airplane for them. Uh, and for that, he was sentenced, he was uh, to 42 months in federal prison. Now, clearly, you're only getting 42 months for conspiracy to traffic drugs. What you did was clearly not that bad. Uh, but under our immigration laws, now that he's in uh, Folkestone, which, by the way, he tells me is much worse than the federal prison that he served time in. His only relief from removal 
uh, will be to claim that uh, he will be tortured uh, back in Colombia, uh, either by the government or by groups the government uh, it permits to exist, uh, or that you know if we can make our claim, possibly withholding a removal claim. Uh, this case will be heard by an immigration judge here in Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta is one of the most terrible immigration courts in the country as far as uh, grants from relief and, and grants from asylum and cat, and cat claims. Um, and, uh, but he's already been in immigration custody for a month and a half. He's got a hearing in a week. Uh, and he said, well, as, if I stay to fight this case, you know, can I get out? And the answer is no. No, you can't get out. You're mandatorily detained. Well, how long will it take? Well, with this judge... Anywhere from three to ten months to do your initial trial work, depending on how busy he gets with other stuff. Uh, and he says, well, I can't, I can't stay here that long. I said, well, you can always agree to be deported uh, rather than fight. And, I mean, of course, you advise your client what the chances of success are, which are always pretty minimal in immigration court, especially in Atlanta, with its approval rate of hovering around 2%, 3%. Um, but he knows, and he strongly believes, he'll be dead if he goes back to the country in which we seek to deport him. Uh, and so he is stuck in this, this terrible limbo of deciding whether or not to fight his case uh, while he's detained, five and a half hours from his lawyer, near no family whatsoever, uh, in a facility that is um, uh, below par on its best day, uh, in a terribly hot and uncomfortable part of Georgia, uh, or go home. And, you know, some, a lot of people choose to go home, be, you know, whether because they think whatever awaits them can't be as bad as where they are, or they can't be separated from their family for that long. Well, the SPLC had a uh, terrific article talking about the immigration court system. By the way, at the same, right, at, right after I met with this man's, um, uh, spoke to this man uh, and his representative, uh, another person come in to meet with me, uh, and this individual. Just because this is because we're talking about the dysfunction of the immigration courts. This individual uh, had a green card through marriage uh, in 2008, and in uh, 2010 he uh, filed to remove the conditions. But when 2011 rolled around, uh, he was separated from his wife, and uh, uh, she did not go to the interview. Uh, ultimately, uh, five years. Later, in 2016, the USCIS denied his case for his wife not coming to the interview. And all this time, he's been renewing his uh, his green card stamp. And uh, finally gets this notice to appear and gets a court hearing uh, for uh, um, March of 2019. And this was about a year ago when he got, got the, finally got the hearing notice. And then about a week before his hearing, he got another court hearing notice that, hey, you have a hearing in May. Of 2019, and then about two weeks ago, got another notice says you have a hearing in November of 2020. Um, now this guy is uh, going to keep his green card. He, he will. He we will win his case in court. I don't have any doubt about that. But he has to wait for a hearing for another year and a half, and that's just his initial hearing. It might take one to two years after that to actually have a final hearing. And because the Trump administration does not terminate cases to send them back to the immigration service, he is stuck in this limbo uh, where he can't get a final resolution of his case because the courts keep delaying it 
Um, and so this is this is the this, this is the, the dysfunction um, of how this process works. Right now, as PLC points out, uh, we have almost nine hundred thousand cases pending in immigration court. There's almost just over four hundred judges, four hundred twenty-five judges. That means there are two thousand pending cases. That's actually active pending cases. That's not counting um, another. Four to five hundred thousand administratively closed cases, which means there's somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty-two hundred cases, three thousand two hundred cases per immigration judge, um, and uh, the quotas. Uh, the Trump administration has put quotas on immigration judges uh, that they have to adjudicate at least set or terminate or at least decide, finish up to seven hundred cases a year. Now. For some judges, that is easy. If you're a judge in a detention center, you are you are a deportation machine. You'll throw out three or four thousand cases a year, and you'll take adequate breaks, and you won't work overtime, and you'll go home every day at four o'clock. Um, but other judges that hear complicated cases outside the detention area, I have a hard hard time adjudicating. Think about it. there's only 220 work days a year. Uh, in which there may be court. Uh, there's training, so take off another couple weeks every year. It's vacation. So now you're down to 175 days a year, 180, 190 days a year, in which court hearings are actually held. Two-thirds of those days, you're hearing initial cases, the master calendar hearings. You are hearing cases uh, about, um, you know, what you're going to, if you're going to plead, if you're going to plead and say, I'm going to leave right away, or I want to hear it. And so now you're down to maybe 60 or 70 days a year in which you can actually have trials. Uh, and they're asking judges to put four to five cases a day, trials, on their cases. One judge a long time ago said, uh, we're, uh, we're uh, doing death penalty cases in the traffic court setting. And that is about as close to the truth as you can get. You know, federal courts have long compared the complexity of immigration law to the tax code. Um, despite this complexity, and unlike criminal courts, immigrants uh, don't get an attorney at government expense. Um, and we know that legal representation makes, makes a huge difference. We've had shows on the huge difference it makes on that. I think you're a great example. Right now, uh, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has the Southeast Immigrant Freedom Initiative, or what we call sci-fi, um, right next door to the Irwin Detention Center. And that has made all the difference in the world for people fighting their cases. Now, the court is not at Irwin. It's just sci-fi that's at Irwin. Uh, and we have worked for a year, uh, a year or so with, with sci-fi to handle bond cases and to make sure... Uh, that they are uh, able to do the work that they do at our firm. Uh, and um, one of my clients, 20, 21 Savage, will be making a donation to them soon uh, to assist them in their efforts. They also train volunteer lawyers. I mean, they, having a lawyer makes all the difference in the world as part of this process. And yet, what happens? Um, the administration, both Democrat and Republican, continue to use immigration detention as a weapon, as an enforcement tool, as an increasing number, uh, over 50 to maybe sometimes 60,000 people they want to detain at any given time. This is larger than the Bureau of Prisons runs. And these places are not being properly maintained by us. It's, uh, it's an awful thing. 
We'll come back here in a second on the Immigration Hour to talk a bit more about immigration and politics. Thanks for your patience as we uh, took a short break there. Now, it didn't appear to be a break to you, but it was a break to me. Um, and one day, maybe we'll have fancy jingles and, uh, and happy talk and commercials during our uh, podcast. But I think it's more important, really, to get you the information that you want and you need as we talk immigration um, here on the Immigration Hour. Now, we spent a little bit of time last week in our podcast talking about the Kushner Immigration Bill. Uh, the reality is the Kushner Immigration Bill is simply a regurgitation of previous anti-immigration, nativist, and exclusionary laws uh, that date back more than 120 years. And you're thinking, what? Chuck, you're crazy. No, Kushner is a brilliant architect of progressive immigration policy that will save America's future. Uh, at least that's what you believe if you write for the Federalist. But I, I think history is a way, uh, is a far better judge. And, uh, and as a history major, somebody who spends a lot of his time uh, looking at history for uh, indicia of what we can expect going forward, I think it's important to take a look back and see what the type of bill that Kushner is pushing forward actually does because we tried to do this before. Let's take a, a step back in time to the late 19th century. Um, and um, late 19th century, there was a, a fellow in Congress uh, by the name of Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, Lodge was an aristocratic Massachusetts senator who dominated the nation's immigration debate from the 1890s into the 1920s. I guess you could say Grassley is uh, an uh, is an architect is an archetype of uh, or the result of somebody like Henry Cabot Lodge or Sessions or, or Lodge wannabes, but they're both pale in comparison to to Henry Cabot Lodge and um, and a a, wrist, uh, a, um, a man who um, disparaged uh, chain immigration. Uh, and uh, the, the simultaneously, simultaneous valorization of the highly educated. Uh, this is uh, basically a, a uh, version of the blatantly discriminated effort Lodge initiated 120 years ago. Uh, Lodge, was a Harvard, uh, Lodge was a Harvard PhD, uh, the author of a dozen books. Uh, his friend, Thomas Reed, who was the Speaker of the House in the closing years of the 19th century, said Lodge arose from thin soil highly cultivated. Lodge himself celebrated his fellow Boston Brahmins for their intense belief in themselves, their race, and their traditions. His ideas of the West uh, uh, was Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Um, now, so what did Lodge do? Well, you know, if you were Italian, Greek, or a Russian Jew or from any of the other national groups that he had in mind in 1895 when he rose on the Senate floor to introduce the first restrictive immigration bill aimed at Eastern and Southern Europeans. Now, 
you get think back what happened over the next 20 years. I mean, we literally millions of people flowed in from Italy, uh, from Eastern Europe, from Poland, from Russia. Um, the widening stream of these folks were were impoverished from the Baltic and Mediterranean states. They were they were they were becoming a flood, and Lodge was determined to keep them out. Uh, and his idea was to submit them, make have it take a literacy test. Just take a literacy. They were illiterate. This is not unlike the poll tax or literacy tax uh, for those uh, African Americans in the South uh, during the same period of time. Uh, he knew that these countries had very little in the way of educational opportunities. And he said this, quote, My bill will bear most heavily upon the Italians, the Russians, the Poles, Hungarians, and the Asiatics, and very lightly, if not at all, upon English-speaking immigrants. And he argued, why should it be otherwise? Uh, the races most affected by his test, he explained, were those with which the English-speaking people have never hitherto assimilated, and are alien to the great body of the people of the United States. Now, lest you think that, uh, unlike Sessions, who was an outlier, and Steve King, who was despised by his colleagues, uh, Lodge was a hit. Uh, his good friend Teddy Roosevelt, lest you think Teddy Roosevelt was perfect, uh, called it an A1 speech. Um, although uh, Lodge was probably happier, uh, by the reaction of the Russian Nihilistic Club of Chicago, which burned him in effigy. Uh, eagerly endorsing the House version of the bill, Lodge's Massachusetts colleague, uh, Representative Elijah Morse, declared himself delighted to see that it would exclude undesirable immigration from Southern Europe, from Russia, from Italy, and from Greece. People, he said, who had brought to the United States little, more, little else than, quote, an alimentary canal and an appetite. Close quote. Lodge's literary bill passed with ease at the end of the congressional term in 1998. But President Grover Cleveland's very last day in office, he struck it down with a veto. And there weren't enough Senate votes to override it. And over the next 20 years, Lodge and his colleagues tried to get me. This, this, this coincides, of course, with the Great Wave. From 1900 to 1918, the great wave of immigration uh, that came, a lot of it from Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh, again and again, he introduced his literary test into nearly every Congress. Three times it was approved by both changers. Three times it was struck down by veto. Only with the anti-European fervor spiking at the brink or the, of World War I and the new theories of racial eugenics, which, are, which is the foundation of today's nativist policies, by the way, shaping public debate was finally enacted over President Wilfred Woodruff's second veto in 1917. But it's just a literacy test. Um, and here's kind of where it failed. Uh, because they were so vocal about this for 20 years, the countries from which... For 20 years, these folks were coming, engaged in a multi-million dollar, multi-year effort to educate their populace such that people that came were literate when the literacy test was passed. Um, one official wrote this from the Immigration Restriction League. Quote, again, yes, we had immigration restrictionists in 1917. Quote, it is probable that primary schools will presently be established in many parts of Europe. And consequently, 
the newly enacted literacy test is likely to diminish in value as a means of restriction is going on. But don't worry. Don't worry. A few years later, the xenophobes finally got what they wanted, and Congress enacted the Immigration Act of 1924, which for the next 45 years, or the 41, 41, yeah, 41 years, limited brutally who could come to the country. Now, um, there was once more than 220,000 Italians arriving each year. The number under this quota system was reduced to 6,500. In 1921, the lands comprising most of the former Russian Empire had sent really nearly 190,000 immigrants to the U.S. 1920 law, 1924 law, 7,346. Now, my grandparents came during this time. My, uh, my opa, my dad's dad, came in 1929. My oma, his mom, came in 1931. Uh, but they were not necessarily affected by this because they were German. And the Germans had much more liberal immigration policies during this time. Uh, so what happened during these 41 years when we wouldn't let Russians in, when we wouldn't let Eastern Europeans into the United States? This unfortunately coincides with the greatest destruction of human life in our history. Man-made over five years, the murder of over six million Jews and others in concentration camps. They were barred from coming to the U.S. because of the Immigration Act of 1924. Their ships as refugees were barred from docking because we had no refugee policies that would allow them to stay. Finally, it was revoked by Congress in 1965 that when Lyndon Johnson signed on Ellis Island, on, on Liberty Island, the new law that enabled the modern wave of immigration we have had since that time in which we did not practice exclusionary rules and exclusionary laws against certain areas of the world. Now, you, some people, a lot of nativists, would point to the time between 1924 and 1965 as the glory years in which uh, we were not inundated with immigrants, in which America achieved great victory in World War II and enjoyed an extraordinary post-war era. Uh, but the reality is far from the truth. During that war, when we sent men to Europe, we imported Mexican labor to work in our fields and deported them when our troops came back. We directly contributed to the murder of thousands of Jews by turning them away from our borders. Uh, while we were the remaining uh, industrial might in the world and one of two superpowers in the world after World War II. The reality is we weren't winning hearts and minds of others by basically practicing a eugenics type of population control and eliminating the ability of people uh, to both seek refuge in the United States and to immigrate to the United States, a country to which many of their relatives were then living. Um, you know, uh, President Johnson um, um, echoed what President Cleveland had said in uh, 1897, the literacy test was a pretext for exclusion. Um, why do I talk about that in the context of Kushner's bill? Because Kushner's bill also has this idea of a literacy test, this idea of a, uh, of a plan 
um, to exclude people from the United States if they don't pass this um, uh, rather bizarre uh, version of a um, uh, of a test to uh, to any new immigrant of this uh, of this process. So, so this the law says this uh, as part of this process. If I can find the actual test here as part of the uh, uh, the Kushner bill, as one of the uh, uh, aides said, patriotic assimilation will be required, a concept that would favor immigrants who has shown an active interest in incorporating the nation's culture and way of life. One administration official offered an example in which green card applicants would be required to pass an exam based upon the reading of George Washington's farewell address or Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Association. Um, now think about that. Um, uh, there is absolutely no way the president knows anything more about the Jefferson letter to the Baptists than he knows about the, the Gnostic texts of Nag Hammadi and probably thinks Fair Washington's farewell address was 666 Fifth Avenue. But this is a quote, but some poor shoeless bastard is supposed to figure out what adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, rights convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties, means in relation to the Hobby Lobby decisions. Um, patterns of authoritarianism never change. They just get smarter. Uh, that was from an article in the Washington Post um, written by Charles Pierce. Or actually, an Esquire written by Charles Pierce. Um, and uh, really um, uh, an entertaining view of what that is. Uh, let's take our um, uh, next final break here on the Immigration Hour. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. Uh, it's great to have you with us here at Cook Baxter Immigration. Um, again, your host, Charles Cook. If you have any questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, if I could figure out how to get you on the show, email me at uh, chuck at immigration.net. Um, now, let's take a deeper dive into the, uh, the Kushner bill. Uh, now, of course, there is no bill. Um, uh, there is no language that's been released to the public. There's no proposed changes pending in Congress. There's no legislation from this. Uh, this was a trial balloon by the president to see who would jump out of the hot air balloon and crash to the ground and who would hang on to dear life and who would shoot bazookas at the balloon as, as, as it ascended into the sky. And turns out that virtually everybody with a brain is pointing out uh, the failure of Kushner's, quote, merit-based immigration plan uh, to really propose the actual reforms neither to modernize and, and improve the U.S. labor migration. Um, now, green cards, as everybody knows, are, are immigrant visas, how somebody comes to the United States. Trump proposes changing the employment-based share of the total of 1.1 million green cards issued every year from 12% to 57% and claims it would make the system more merit-based. This would be achieved by reducing the number of visas allocated to family ties, 66%, 
the diversity lottery, 4.6%. And increasing the EB category and the, EB and the employment-based visas would be named the Build America visas. You have to really love the Goebbels-esque use of language. Uh, Frank Lutz must be on working double time to come up with these, uh, these, these, these symbolistic words that they use, uh, jingoism at its height. And they would prioritize edu- advanced education and skills and rank potential immigrants according to a new point system. Trump also said, as he does, is making stuff up, we'd like to see if we can go higher than 57%. In reality, though, only 12% of current green cards are allocated to new immigrants arriving with jobs or skills. Many of these new green card holders come to the U.S. through other categories are also well-educated. High family and diversity preferences. Uh, a lot of them are in the education. And with the employment-based categories, very few immigrants are able to come to the U.S. as primary immigrants with a path to citizenship if they work lower wage, yet lesser skilled jobs. The, the employment-based third preference category caps the number of unskilled workers at 10000 a year, but not even 50% of that cap has been used in the last five years. In other words, the system is already dominated by immigrants with skills and degrees and quite exclusionary toward those without them. Thus, we should rethink the system rather than double down on it. Um, now, a lot of Democrats have said that the Trump-Kushner proposal is dead on arrival in Congress, mostly because it doesn't address DACA or TPS. It just literally ignores 11 million people, which is just stupid because we've got to deal with it eventually. Uh, but we still should look at it because... Um, This broadly outlined policy, which, by the way, is reminiscent and strongly dependent upon the Cotton-Purdue bill, uh, which would destroy legal immigration to America over the next generation. It would be a reiteration of the 1924 bill. Well, Chuck, how can you possibly say that? They're going to let a million people into the country. They're not letting a million people into the country. Now, let's let's take a deep dive. Uh, Right now... About 140,000 employment-based visas are approved every year, divided by three. What do I mean by that? Uh, The average family size for immigrant families, three, uh, overall the numbers. And these 140,000 employment and investor-based visas are actually given to the employee or the investor and his family. So there's really only about 40,000 of them. It's really a pretty small number. Uh, employment, family-based visas, there's about 435,000 of those in the preference categories, again, divided by three, and you really only have about 140,000 people a year uh, immigrating to America, plus their families uh, every year, Um, and then you have the lottery, which is 50,000 people plus their families, it doesn't detract from the families there. And you have the randomly assorted refugees and asylees and the numbers that come in. But if no, that doesn't that doesn't add to 1.1 million. That adds up to like 600,000. What about the rest? The rest are spouses, parents, and children of U.S. citizens, what we call immediate relatives. Um, they're unlimited. They can come as many as you want to. I mean, that's why immigration lawyers, when they get asked, well, what's the easiest way to immigrate to America? Fall in love. Fall in love, and you'll be able to immigrate to America through your spouse. And you pick who it is. It doesn't matter anymore. Uh, this bill basically is a platform that Trump's trying to use to unite the Republican Party in immigration and show they are for something. 
How can you be for something if you don't even understand what it does? Um, now, again, no details, but we have this. Um, the, the idea of focusing on scales and employment is this. Look, if we say there's a point system like Canada had for years and you have X number of points for your master's degree and X number of points because you speak English and apparently X number of points because you know Jefferson's address to the Baptist Association in, in 1803, um, then you could immigrate to America. But we will be eliminating your ability to bring your parents. You will not be able to bring your children over the age of 18. Um, and uh, you have to then ask, well, why would I go to a country that would not accept my family to come with me? Outside of the United States, family is everything. Family is key. Family is life. Uh, especially in cultures in which there are only one or two children. Um, the children are responsible for their parents. So why would I immigrate to a country, bring my skills, my education, my ideas, if they don't want my parents? This is one of the many immense flaws in this process. I mean, one of the many events. What we, what we need is an immigration system that continues to reflect the values of family education and adequately fulfills our humanitarian obligations, which we're not currently doing, and that it's flexible enough to adjust to the skill mix and the levels of employment-based immigration the United States needs at any given point in time. Flexibility is the key. The health of the economy is the key. Labor market needs are the key. If someday the Department of Labor says, hey, uh, we have a huge shortage of carpenters and home health aides. All right, then we need to have a system that doesn't just allow in engineers and computer programmers. We need to have a system that allows in home health aides and carpenters, uh, which we do not currently effective have. Um, what Congress should do is enact legislation creating a commission on immigration and the labor market that can better align the aspects of U.S. immigration system that have to do with employment with actual economic needs. George Bush talked about this. I mean, you know, say what you want about Bush, but he got the immigration issue. A commission could advise Congress on how to adjust annual employment-based immigration numbers, improve the system overall, help ensure future labor migration flows are based on evidence, data, and market needs instead of unsubstantiated claims of labor shortages. Um, commission can focus on improving data, uh, studying aspects of the system need reform, outlining strategies for elevating labor standards with smart immigration policies. Um, the, th this is awesome and it can be done. This is, this is not impossible. This actually is remarkably easy. Remarkably easy to do. Um, the Migration Policy Institute, the Economic Policy Institute, the AFL-CIO, the Independent Task Force on Immigration and America's Future, the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on Immigration Policy, the Brookings-Duke Immigration Policy Roundtable, all of them have endorsed the commission idea. All of them. Kushner's team was reported to be considering the idea, but it didn't make the cut. Why didn't it make the cut? I don't think Trump knows what a commission is for. I don't, I, and the reality is, this is not Kushner's bill. Let's not kid ourselves about that. This is Vice President Stephen Miller's bill. This is, there's nothing. 
There is no bill that we would propose that will be endorsed by Republicans that Stephen Miller is not 100 million percent behind. Let's not kid ourselves about that. We know what this is about. So the Kushner plan, um, which apparently, you know, is not going to be quite as good as his Middle East peace plan, uh, focuses only on green cards for highly skilled and educated workers. Now, Trump himself is a, if he's not a racist, he's certainly a bigot. Uh, and we certainly know where he stands on this issue because he keeps talking about it publicly. Trump has made it clear that he only wants to allow low-wage migrant workers into the economy through temporary visa programs like he uses in his resorts <clears throat> for the H-2A and H-2B golf course workers and winery workers and the workers that are captive underpaid and make the same way as undocumented workers that work in his hotels. Um, now, un under Trump and Kushner's proposal, very few immigrant workers without college degrees would have the chance to enter the United States permanently and become citizens. Their only option would be to come through the employer-controlled visa programs where the best could hope for is a permanently temporary visa. Um, you know, uh, Pelosi came out of this and called Trump the Kushner plan... Uh, uh, condescending, because it fails to respect the values and devalues the contribution of families to the United States. Um, this is, uh, um, Daniel Costa wrote this article at the uh, Working uh, Economics blog, the Economic Policy Institute, and, and it echoes what many of us have been saying for years. Why are we not tying future immigration flow to our economy while still respecting the family as a key component of our immigration policies. And why are we tied to this magic number randomly developed in 1990 about how many immigrants we can allow into the United States in a given year? The EPI points out a very interesting factoid. In the 10,000 lesser skilled worker category for the last decade, we have used less than 5,000. That includes families. So, you know, we've used less than 1,500 to 2,000 people have immigrated to this category. One, people don't know about it. But two, the demand for that type of immigration process apparently is not materializing. If you look at the EB3 category, which is the employment-based third preference category where you can be a skilled worker with a couple years of experience, or you can be a bachelor's degree holder, except for India and China, and a little bit for the Philippines, although that's now current, there is no backlog. There is no wait. The only waits are for India and China. And if you literally took out India and China and said, look, we're going to clear this backlog. You know, there's 250,000 Indians. All right, you know what? Next year, you all get green cards. We just, let's just deal with it. You know, you're already here. They're all here. It's not like they're waiting to come in. They're already here working. We're going to clear this backlog. Just get them done. Done. And China is, I mean, 80 or 90,000. Okay, you're done. You're cleared. You're good to go. Uh, and, then if we, and then if we kept the numbers we currently have, we wouldn't use them every year. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be using them. Um, and at that point, you say, look, if you graduate from our universities and colleges with a master's degree or Ph.D., we will literally give you a green card. We want you to stay in the United States. We want you to be here. It's silly for us to be doing anything less than that and certainly counterproductive. Um, it's been a great week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We'll be back uh, 
uh, again with our podcast next week um, to talk about immigration, immigration politics, immigration policy. Maybe by then, maybe by then we'll actually have Kushner's miraculous immigration plan. Till then, this is your host, Charles Cook of the Immigration Hour here at Cook Baxter Immigration. Talk to you later.